Well, last week and the week before that, uh, you know, Frank started this. So if you don't like today's message, you can blame Frank uh, because uh, it all started with him. Uh, he was talking about the, uh, the the difficulty of the switch from dualistic thinking to unitive thinking, and and uh, how opposites and paradox needs to be embraced, and and how we need to look at things differently. And then I kind of took the ball and ran with that last week, and we talked about how the hero's journey is the embodiment, the shape, that universal shape of the journey, the descent before the ascent. Next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. So we're starting the Lenten season, and um, you know this is heading right into the Paschal Mystery. It's what the church has traditionally called the shape of this journey for the last 2,000 years almost. And that idea of the descent before the ascent, the willingness to release everything that we think we know about what this journey is about and, and, and everything that we cling to that is our support system internally, the mental support system, the security blanket, in favor of what really is. You know, this, is this is the way it works. This is all of Jesus' imagery, from, from laying down your life for your friends to care, picking up your cross and carrying it. All of these are imagery and images of selling everything that you possess and giving it to the poor. Imagery about this letting go, this release. And so this is what we were talking about, that the details of our life's journey are not the point. In every hero's journey, whether it's Dorothy Gale or Luke Skywalker, you name it, Moses, Solomon, Abraham, Jesus, the ones we covered last week, showing us that moment of release. Everything that was animating the the journey, all the, the tasks and challenges that each hero thought the journey was about is released. And then the true import, the true issues, the true meaning and purpose and identity can start to come to the fore. And that the trick of living life is to take the journey seriously, take the tasks and the challenges seriously enough to actually do what is required in the journey so that we can complete the circuit and get to true meaning and purpose and identity, but not to take them so seriously that we become defined by them, identified by them, so that we never see true meaning and purpose as well. Life is complex, isn't it? I don't know about your life, but isn't life just a constant flood of details, a constant flood of of tasks, a constant multitasking exercise? All that complexity, all those details, you can get lost in that. And it can stop you flat if you become lost in those details, defined by those details, as if that was all there was to life. And so we start in simplicity in the garden of our infancy. We move into the complexity of our life's journey as adults. But the goal of the spiritual journey, the goal of the contemplative journey, is to come full circuit back to the garden, back to simplicity again. That's the shape of the journey. We want to come back to simplicity, even as we continue to deal with all the details. With the complexity, interiorly there is a stillness. Interiorly. There is a unity. There is a simplicity. And so what I wanted to do this morning is just take a story out of the New Testament and see how the shape of that journey works, not only for the details of our lives, but also for the way that we look at Scripture. We can do the same thing with Scripture. We can get so lost in the complexity and all the details and all of the study that we miss the main points behind it. 
So I wanted to take this passage and, uh, and just kind of break it apart and, and see if we can apply the shape of the journey to the passage and see what we come out with. You're along for the ride, so let's see what happens, right? Let's take a look at John 2, right at verse 1. And this is going to be the famous story of the, the miracle of changing water to wine at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Cheeky son. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. That's a good Jewish mother, kind of undaunted by all of that, right? Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. The actual translation there is two or three measures, of which nobody really knows what a measure is, but it's somewhere between four and a half gallons to nine and a half gallons. So if there was three of those or two of those in some and three of those others, we don't really know, but they just kind of translated to 20 or 30 gallons each. In other words, it was a lot of liquid, all right? And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn it did, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay. The Jews had a very different way of interpreting their own scriptures than we do. They had four levels of interpretation. And it went from the simple, which was called the Peshat, to the Ramez, which was the hint, to the Drash or Midrash, which was the search, and then finally the Sod, which was the secret. Each one of these levels of interpretation was diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the scriptures. So the simple was just taking the literal layer right off the top. What does the story actually literally say? What does it hint at? What are the meanings that are beneath the surface that we can take a look at that can add depth to the simple meaning? The drash or the midrash is a search. That is where you actually look into the text. Now you're not taking only what the text is is giving you and pulling it out. That's called exegesis. Now you're putting something in. That's called eisegesis in hermeneutics. And you're putting something in because what you're trying to do is you're trying to search out a meaning that's going to have relevance to people's lives right here and right now. The Jewish practice of Midrash is huge because they're taking the truths of ancient times and they're bringing them and making them relevant into our times. Now, really, that's what you know. teachers, preachers, pastors in this chair do all the time. We're always trying to make things relevant. We don't consider that legitimate interpretation anymore. It's just, a, I guess, a riff on the truth, I suppose. But for the Jews, this was legitimate interpretation, to have that search, to take that meaning out. And then finally, the sowed or the secret was looking even beneath that 
you know, into the numbers, the very numbering system and the numbers of the, the uh, numerical equivalents of each letter and each word and looking for kind of Bible code stuff that was going to give them these mystical meanings. And so all of these layers are happening at the same time. We're not going to follow each one of those, but we're going to start at the Peshat. We're going to start at this, this simple meaning. As we read this story, you know, what do you get out of it? What have you always gotten out of it your whole life? If, as you've heard this story, if you have. Well, it's Jesus' first miracle. It is the beginning of the signs that caused his followers to believe in who he was beyond just a great man and beyond just a great teacher. He was this anointed of God, Mashiach in their language. And this was a set of signs that started to move them down this, this path. It was the beginning of their faith as they as they walked with Jesus over the, the three years or so, or however many years of his public ministry. For us, now 2,000 years later, it's become one of the iconic miracles, isn't it? We're always talking about changing water into wine and walking on water. Those seem to be the two biggies, right? And we're always talking about walking on water and changing water. That has become just, you know, just iconic for us. It is sort of the shorthand, the sum total of everything that Jesus was as God incarnate. Right? And so that's the story. It's the beginning of those miracles. It's the first miracle that sets everything in motion. You know? But have you thought much past that simple meaning? There's a lot of details, even that we can consider at this literal level, that can help us to sort of dive in deeper into the text. So let's take a look at a couple of those. First of all, there's this third day, this idea of the third day. On the third day, there was a wedding at Canaan. Third day from what? Well, if you go back to John 1, you find out it's the third day after he had a conversation with Nathaniel, after he called Philip, who then called Nathaniel. And Nathaniel's great. You know, he says, I found the Messiah. I found the chosen one, Philip's saying to, to Nathaniel. He said, he comes from Nazareth. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You've got to love a guy like that. Yeah. Just a little bit of a sarcastic cynic in the New Testament. Perfect. But, of course, Jesus wins him over. Tells him where he was sitting under the fig tree before he even met him and so on and so forth. Three days after that, we have this conversation. We have this, this story taking place now in Cana. Right? There is little mention of Cana as a city, as a town anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, it only appears in John. It appears about three times. In Aramaic, it would be pronounced Cana. Archaeologists aren't really sure where it exists. The one that's on the tourist trail trap, if you go to Israel, is obviously and really not the right one. There's no archaeological evidence there. But there is a town called Kerbet Kana that's about eight miles northwest of where they assume Nazareth is, north of Jerusalem in the Galilee, that has the archaeological evidence. I think that's probably the one. It's set on a really high hill that overlooked the entire valley, about 12 miles from the Sea of Galilee. It was a, a, a really great spot. And it seemed to be another headquarters for Jesus, a place that he kept coming back to. Because Jesus lands in Cana where he has this wedding feast. But by chapter 4 in John, he's back at Cana again, and he's healing uh, a royal official's son. And so, like Capernaum was one of his headquarters where he would come back to, it appears that Cana was one of those as well that he was also coming back to over and over again. Next little phrase here we have is the mother of Jesus. I bet you never stop to consider that in the Gospel of John, Jesus' mother is never named. 
Isn't that interesting? He never says Mary. It's always the mother of Jesus. John also never names himself. He's always called the beloved disciple. Is what he calls himself. Never names Mary, never names himself. And scholars have wondered about this for 2,000 years, and we're still wondering. We don't have any idea why he did that. Maybe it's because of the special relationship that he had with Jesus' mother. At the foot of the cross, Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And he puts them together in a special way. She, he is taking the reins for Jesus as the protector of his mother. But we don't really know. But it's interesting that, that she is not named. And um, we'll just keep wondering about that. The wedding itself. Weddings are a huge deal in the ancient Near East in a way that we can't even imagine. First of all, they didn't have any other form of entertainment, really. Weddings were huge. Weddings lasted seven or eight days, ritually. All right? This was a huge thing. It took the entire town out for a week, basically. And they would party and party and party. It was a huge deal to have these weddings. It, was, it brought the whole community together. And really, the community was pretty much all related to a large degree. There is no word in Aramaic for brother or sister. So uh, I'm sorry, there's no word in Aramaic for cousin. So brothers and sisters are all extended family. The extended family, just like uh, uh, Hana in, in uh, Hawaiian, is, this, is not a nuclear family. Mishpacha means everybody. That's connected. So whole communities usually were somehow connected and related, and they'd all come together for these wedding celebrations. A huge central focus in their community life. Scholars have wondered why this wedding here caused Mary to take such an interest in what was happening. And some scholars believe that it was probably the wedding of one of Jesus' siblings. Did you know Jesus had siblings? The New Testament says he does. Again, though, since there's no word for cousin, brother and sister could mean cousin, and so we don't really know for sure. Everybody's just speculating. But it is odd that Mary takes such a central role or seems to have such a sense of responsibility when the wine runs out, which she would do if it was one of her children's wedding, right? That would make more sense. But we're just speculating here. We don't really know. And then there's no wine. The wine runs out. Scholars have wondered about this too. If this was the first day of the wedding and the wedding was scheduled to last for seven days, don't you think they would have had enough wine to at least get the, through the first day? Some people say, well, maybe Jesus arrived a little bit later. Maybe there was a time telescoping thing going on here. We don't really know. But the important thing to understand is what it would mean to a family to run out of wine for the wedding. The social contract, quote-unquote, of, of Eastern hospitality is something like we just can't possibly understand. The code of hospitality was legally binding in their culture. In fact, if a family were to do the, have the faux pas of running out of wine, not being able to entertain and have hospitality for their guest at a wedding ceremony, you could actually sue them. You could look for legal damages in their culture. This is a big deal huge deal. We don't get that, but it's a big deal for them to run out of wine at this point. And so Mary turns to Jesus and she simply tells them, they have no wine. Now, another interesting thing here, is she really looking for a miracle at this point? She doesn't ask for a miracle. She doesn't even ask him to do anything. She's just reporting. John Calvin, famous John Calvin from the Reformation, 
in one of his commentaries, he said that she didn't, he doesn't believe that she was asking for a miracle. But she was asking for Jesus implicitly to do something, maybe make a great speech that covered for the family. And especially if it was his family, their family, if it was one of his brothers or sisters, it wouldn't have been his sister, it would have been his mother, his brother probably getting married, to, to step up as the head of the family. Joseph is nowhere to be found. He's probably already died. And so for Jesus, to, as the head of the family, to stand up and try to make this right somehow. She'd never seen him do a miracle before, apparently. There is no, this is the first recorded miracle in the Gospels. So how would she know that he was going to be able to do that? Well, she had all of her experience, all the, the, the birth narrative stories and all the miraculous things she saw. Maybe that prepared her to expect something. But what did Mary really expect? What was she asking for? It's just an interesting question. We don't really know what was going through her mind. But we know what she gets in return. First thing he does is say, woman. <laughs> now that sounds really harsh and really disrespectful for us. It softens somewhat when you put it back into the original language, whether it's Greek or whether it's Aramaic. The word there is a term of respect. The word there is a term of affection. It would be like us saying ma'am, or better probably in, in Spanish saying senora. It was a term for a married woman. It could also mean wife. You know? uh, but it doesn't sound as, as bald-faced as it sounds when we hear it in English. But it still is really unusual. It's unusual for a son to address his mother directly without using her title, Ima, mother. And so something's going on here. It's the same word that Jesus uses at the cross when he says woman, you know, gune in, in Greek, antna in, in Aramaic, behold your son, son, behold your mother. It's the same word he uses there. He's obviously sending a signal. He's obviously creating a boundary. He's obviously signaling to his mother that the relationship is going to be changing. As he moves from her son, as he moves from just being in her care, in her family, to a public figure, to a public ministry that's going to take him away from the home, away from the family business, away from the familiarity of everything that they've known to this point. He's signaling to her, yes, this is happening. Woman as if you're not really my mother anymore. I'm not the son of Mary. I'm now the son of man. There's, there's this implied movement. And then he says this other thing, which is even worse. Let's see, how is it translated in English? What does that have to do with us? If you really can translate that directly from the language, it's, uh, you know, what to, you, what to me and to you would be the literal way that it would be translated. This is a Hebrew idiom. It appears all over the, the Tanakh, all over the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it can mean a lot of different things, just idiomatically. Let me see if I can get these right. Um, what to me and what to you. It can mean, what do we have in common? It can mean, uh, why involve me? Why turn to me? It can mean, don't tell me what to do. It can mean, your concern is not mine. It can mean, what have I done to you that you would do this to me? It can mean any and all of those things, from, from the, the more innocuous to the more insulting. 
But he's basically telling her, there is now some space between us. I am no longer going to be the head of your family. You can no longer turn to me for these kinds of things because everything is starting to change. He's leaping off. He's moving off into his public ministry. And yet he says, my hour has not yet come. This is a term that he uses six other times in John. He's always talking about his hour. His hour has not yet come or his hour has come. And every time he uses it, he seems to be talking about the moment of self Revelation, revealing who he is. He's talking about the fulfillment of his mission in, in death and resurrection. He, he's, he's looking forward to this time when everything kind of becomes public. Everything is known. And even the miracle that he does here, you think about it, it's not really public, is it? The head waiter doesn't know. The people, they're sloshed anyway. They don't have any idea what he did. The servants know. Interesting, the servants are the ones who know. The least of these are the ones who know what he actually did. But it's not yet public. His hour has not yet come, even though he takes care of business. And here's the beautiful thing, of course. Mary, even though she gets this sharp rebuke, and you've got to wonder what is going through her mind when she hears this from her son, right? She's undaunted. <laughs> Whatever he tells you to do, do it. She knows something's going to happen. She knows her son well enough to know, even as he creates this this new boundary, that he's going to do something. Something is going to happen. That's just at the surface level. That's kind of putting things in context. That's trying to understand the story from a little bit of a Hebrew first century point of view. But how about if we take a deeper dive? How about if we move now into the remez, into the hint? There's so many symbols here. The book of John, the the gospel of John, is unlike the other three synoptics in, in many ways. But the way that it's organized is not chronological. Yeah, there's some general chronology to it that, that matches the other three. But it's organized in a way that is symbolic. It's organized in a way that is theological. It is the, the youngest of the four Gospels. It was written toward the end of the first century when their ideas about Jesus were much more fully developed in terms of who they understood him to be and how they understood him to be interacting with them after his resurrection. And so there's a different quality to John. It's very symbolic. It's very figurative. It's even allegorical. This story is almost an allegory. Let's take a look at how this works. See how we're adding complexity as we go, right? This is the shape of the journey, kind of moving into that complexity. We've got to see if we can make the full circuit. The third day. What does the third day signify? Well, first of all, if you know anything about Jewish numbering system. Three is a number of completion or perfection in their, in their numbering system. But here's something really interesting. From John 1.19 to the end of the first chapter, each day is delineated. He says this day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. It's kind of unusual because there's no real chronology here. The, the events that happen each day aren't linked to each other in a way that you need that sequencing. But each day is in effect, numbered. And there are four days from John one nineteen to the end of the chapter. And then, in 2.1, we say on the third day, four plus three is seven. Seven is a number of spiritual perfection. The idea of the Jews is, is there are four spatial directions you can go, front and back, side to side, up and down. The seventh direction is the spiritual direction, the direction of spiritual perfection. 
What's happening here is that John is saying from the time that that John the Baptist makes his first testimony to the time of the first miracle of Jesus is a perfect number. It's a number of completion. It's really a second creation week almost, if you will. It's this time of creation. And so he's saying something very significant here. He's showing Jesus as transcending his station just as a man. The number six is the number of incompletion or the number of preparation or the number of man. And so seven is transcending that. On the seventh day, he moves into a whole different realm. There is there's an ascension here of sorts. And, and this is what this, these numbers are starting to get across, right? John is the only gospel of the four that doesn't have a story of the, the temptation in the wilderness, the 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. No mention of that in John. But this little story, this pericope, functions in exactly the same way. Instead of the 40-ness, we have the sevenness. But this is Jesus' initiation. This is his, his coming of age, his coming out, you know, Just as he did after the 40 days in the desert, he came and started his public ministry. After these seven days, this perfect number, this symbolic number, Jesus is coming out and starting his his ministry. And so we have the same function here of Jesus transcending mere manhood, transcending boyhood, and moving out in a new way. That's idea of spiritual perfection. There's the six water jars. I just said that the six it means the imperfection and the incompletion. Uh, then we have the six moving into the sevenness, and so it's just kind of laying that imagery on in layers, transcending, transcending. The first sign here at Cana is said by John to be the first of a series of signs. And if you take a look in your, you're not going to have it up on the screen, but if you have your inserts, the Gospel of John, scholars have often said, can be understood in terms of its structure in four sections. First, there's a prologue. That's just John 1, uh, 1, 1 to 118. And then there's what's called the Book of Signs from 119 to 1250. Changing the water into wine is the first sign. Healing the royal official's son is the second sign. Healing the paralytic at Bethesda is the third. Feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on water. Healing the man blind from birth. And then finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. These seven signs, most scholars believe, were an early proto-gospel that only had the signs. Nothing else. No narrative structure connecting it, but just sign, sign, sign. And John used this as part of the source material for his gospel. But once again, the number is seven. It's pointing back to the creation week once again. You have the old creation, the creation of the physical world, with Adam as the progenitor there, and now we have the new creation, which is the creation of a a spiritual realm, with Jesus as the new Adam there. And I know this sounds so obscure to our ears, but in those times, steeped in the scriptures as they were, these allusions, this symbolism, would have been something that people would understand. They would get the joke. <laughs> they would get the illusion. They would understand what John is trying to do here. At least some of them would. But it also gives us so much insight into what 
these early followers of Jesus believed about who he was and where he was trying to take them. It's so interesting. Then you have the book of glory or exaltation, which contains the Last Supper, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. And the resurrection often is considered the eighth sign. And the number eight in, in Hebrew numerology uh, means rebirth, which is obvious. And then there's the last chapter, which is the epilogue. And so even the structure of John is leading to the significance of what's happening right here. We have water. The water of the, of, in the six pots was specifically stated to be used for purification. These were the Jewish purification rites, this code, which then symbolizes the entire purification and temple system of the Jews. As contrasted with wine, which was a symbol of joy and celebration and abundance in Hebrew culture. And so we see, again, this, this movement from mere ritual, from mere form, to fullness and completion and abundance. And the wedding itself, the Old Testament prophets always looked at the wedding feast, the way that it was handled in in the ancient Near East, as the symbol of the messianic days to come. In their wedding ceremony, the bridegroom would come and make a promise to his bride that he would return and take her away to the wedding ceremony at their betrothal. It's called the ketubah, which is the promise. And when he keeps his promise, he comes back. And so the wedding was understood as the promise of the Messiah to come back and take the bride, which was Israel itself, with him to his father's house. And so we have the wedding as the symbol of the messianic days to come, the messianic return. We have the wine as the, as the abundance that the uh, Mashiach is going to bring. And we have all of these symbols kind of laid on top of one another. Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, all using this imagery throughout their prophetic books. And now we have John bringing it and laying it back on to the life of Jesus in a way that they could understand the connection between the two as we move from Ramez to the Hint to the Midrash, which is the search, there's a book called Second Barak, Baruch. And um, in that, the, the abundance of the wine at the time of the Messiah's return is so great that each grape is going to yield 120 gallons of wine. Now, that's a grape. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. That 120 gallons is just about what those six water pots would have hold held, depending on how you handle the measures. You see the one-to-one correspondence that's happening here? What's happening in the minds of the people, how they're trying to understand this. When Mary says, or the woman who must not be named says, there is no wine, what she's basically doing is she's revealing the barrenness of the Jewish ritual system. Hmm? And as contrasted with the abundance of the Messiah, that this system has become barren. The system no longer has the ability to nurture life any longer. And driving the point home from here, even moving deeper, Jesus leaves Cana after that wedding and he goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, for Pesach. And what does he do there? He cleanses the temple. Which is really weird because this is at the beginning of John and all the other three Gospels have it at the end, right You know, before his crucifixion. But here's John, not worrying about chronology, worrying about putting together stories that have the same theme. 
The Cana miracle was showing the barrenness of the purification rites and, and the, the code of the, of the ritual of the Jews against the abundance of Messiah. When he cleanses the temple, he's showing the barrenness of the temple that has become a den of thieves. It no longer has the power that it should have. And it's contrasting that with the abundance to come. The other three Gospels put the cleansing of the temple together with the cursing of the fig tree, which is doing exactly the same thing. The fig tree is also barren, has no fruit. From there, from Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, he meets Nicodemus in John 3, the famous story of Nicodemus and Jesus, right? What is he doing there? Now he's taking from the Nicodemus from the old thinking, from the old religious ideas and concepts, the physical and natural way of thinking about their faith and about their religion and moving it into rebirth into the spiritual. And from there, he goes back to Galilee, but through Samaria and meets a Samaritan woman. And what happens there? There he's looking at the old ethnic biases, the old prejudices against women, against Samaritans, against anyone who is non-Jewish, and moving from that exclusive understanding to an inclusive understanding where everybody is welcome at table, no matter who they are. And he's moving from the old idea of worship that she's talking about. Are we supposed to worship on our mountain or on your mountain? And he says, no, there's going to come a time when we move to true worship in spirit and truth. Over and over and over again in these first four chapters of John, we see this movement from the old to the new, from the barren to the abundant, from the exclusive to the inclusive, from the physical to the spiritual. It's all about a raising of awareness, moving into a new place, from the physical to the spiritual, from the old sacrificial and and ritual purification rites to being reborn in a living relationship with our God. And that Jesus as Messiah embodies the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the temple, the fulfillment of all these purity codes. Question you may be asking yourself, were these ancient writers really that smart? Were they really able to pack this much symbolism, this much meaning into such a short story? You bet they were. (laughs) They lived this stuff. They lived their lives in a different way than we live ours. Our lives are now so intellectually based. Our lives are now so literally based. They live steeped in layers of mystical reality, steeped in layers of, of looking at life from these different points of view with God absolutely manifestly in the center of every moment and everything that they did. They were much more prepared not only to write this type of of literature, this type of book, but also to receive it in a way that's so hard for us to do. But now here, we, at this time, in our modern Western lives, is it important for us to understand all this? We just went through a lot of stuff. How many of you remember all that stuff? Is it important that you remember all that stuff? Of course not. It's not. Re- but if you're aware of it, and you're aware that there is a different sensibility, there's a different way that the first followers of Jesus approached their life with each other and their life with their God, right? 
then maybe there's something that we can take away from that. Maybe there's something, we don't need all the details. We move from the simple story into the complexity of all these layers of meaning. But now let's move it back down again. Let's move through the complexity back into the simple. What is it that we can take away from all of that that we just went through that really will have relevance in our lives as soon as we walk out that door, even before we walk out that door? Maybe just brushing up against what John loaded into his book, loaded into these stories, the sheer volume of all the packed symbolism that is here, the density of this message, maybe it'll at least give us the impression of the passion and the fervor and the conviction that these people felt about their lives with Christ, about their lives with each other, about the way that their God reached into history and touched them in ways that we typically don't see, we typically don't understand. They ordered their lives around their convictions. They ordered their lives around the passion that they felt for each other. The way that they conducted their community, the way that they cared for each other, the way that they loved each other was the fruit, was the effect, was the proof of the conviction, the fervor, and the passion that they had for their God and for each other. They told these stories over and over. They loaded them with this symbolism. They taught them to their young. They created catechisms. And they made sure that every succeeding generation was taught when they were rising up and they were laying down, as Deuteronomy says. They transformed lives, theirs and the lives of each, each other, and often the lives of their communities by the strength of their faith and the passion that they had. But let's go one step further, back into simplicity now. What does this story say to you? Does this story light anything up in you? Is there anything that just stood out with an impact that you can use right here and right now? I hope you'll read the story again and see I'll tell you what was the singular most impressive thing for me. And that's Mary. What was Mary feeling? Think about it. She was probably only 12 or 13 years older than her son Jesus. Hebrew brides were married at 12 or 13. She was just a girl, just a kid. Now, maybe at this point, she's in her early 40s. If Jesus is 30, she's 42, 43, somewhere around there. She's still a young woman, maybe not by first century standards, but certainly by ours. And she has had these 30 years with her son as she understood a son to be in their culture. Luke 2 tells us that after Jesus has his incident in Jerusalem where he gets lost and, uh, you know, I'm about my father's business and all that. After that, he went home with Joseph and Mary And he submitted to them. And he grew in wisdom and stature. Which tells us he lived the life that Mary was used to seeing in sons, in men, in her culture. And now everything is starting to change. Jesus was probably always pulling sideways on the car because something was calling him, even as he remained faithful to his role as the head of the household. But she had to be feeling the tension. 
And now here's this break. She asked him to step up once again as head of the household and make something happen for the good of the community, the good of the family. And he sets her back on her heels. How does that make a mother feel? You mothers out there who have felt the sting of your children going sideways on you, who have felt the break, who remember the child that you held and nurtured and carried, and suddenly they're someone you don't really recognize anymore. We talked about last week how Jesus' family in the Gospel of Mark thought he was nuts and wanted to collect him and basically have him committed. They had to take care, get a conservatorship here. He's out of his mind, the Scripture says. And here's Jesus setting a boundary. What was Mary feeling? And yet she still asks. Well, she doesn't really ask. She lays the situation down at Jesus' feet and then sort of steps back to wait to see what had happened. She knew what she desired. She knew what she wanted. She knew what she wanted for her community and her family. But she just sort of lays this at Jesus' feet. And then she gets the rebuke. But what does she do? Undaunted. Whatever, they t- whatever he tells you to do, you do it. There is a faith in her. There is a belief in her in who her son is, who her God is, that even when it looks like it's going sideways, even when it looks like her deepest desire is not going to be the outcome, she still stays on course. She still knows whatever he tells you to do, do. Whatever he tells me to do, do. Stay on the course. Even if it doesn't look like where I'm going is where I want to go. Can we live our lives of faith that way? Can we pray wholeheartedly for the things that we want, but just lay them at the feet of our higher power, of our God, of Jesus? And still, regardless if desire is delayed, if gratification is delayed, to continue to move on the course that we set the course that we said we believed, the course that we said we had conviction over and continue to move forward. This is the story to me. There's so many layers to it, but the central piece to me, the one that is going to animate me going forward with all the things that I know our community needs, with all the things that I worry about over our community through the transitions of this last year and the transitions that are coming up, is Mary just laying the situation, knowing that her father knows what she needs before she even says it. But she says it anyway. She lays it out there, but without the expectation that things maybe will go exactly as she imagines them. And yet, the faith, the action can continue. From a simple story to layers of complex meaning, back to one thing that can have an impact on your life. This is the shape of our journeys. This is what the hero's journey of our life from birth to death and everything in between looks like. To deal with the complex issues, to deal with the challenges and tasks, but not to be identified with them, to be willing to let them all go and come back to the one thing that you always had but didn't realize it when you started the journey that is going to be your animating factor 
that essence that can take you through and make you look like these heroes of faith that we celebrate in our scriptures. And that is the point. Not to revere them, but to let them become us and us them as we live and choose and embrace and do all the things that we do every moment of our lives. Read the story again. Find the peace that can give you that insight, that piece of yourself that is still there, always was, but maybe I covered over for a moment. And then read another story and another story and see how they reinforce each other, that the whole Bible is really one point being told a thousand different ways. And then we just thank our God that he took such time to give us this message that we could scamper after and do the things that we need to do as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, The only response is gratitude to everything that you give us, Lord. Help us to see the complexity of life as the necessity that it is. But without that emotional twist, help us to take the breath and connect and realize we can take these details one at a time. We can take them seriously, move through them, but they don't own us. They don't define us. We are your sons and daughters. We are connected to you, and that makes all the difference. Help us to see these patterns, become aware of them, so that we can ride them like surfers on a wave and not get buried. We all need this, Lord. And as we move through the transitions that I know so many of us are moving through, we need them more right now, the ability to see this. So, Father, thank you for giving us all the tools, all the gifts, all the people and guides that we need in our lives to be able to navigate. And thank you for the gift of your spirit that's always drawing us. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us with abandon. And never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.